Hey, it's Jennifer Jones Lee. You're listening to KFI AM 640 Wake Up Call on demand on the iHeartRadio app. KFI and KOST HD2, Los Angeles, Orange County. You are in the home stretch. Here's Jennifer Jones Lee with your Friday morning wake up call. Let's do this, people. Woo! I have no idea. I woke up this morning like, yeah, it's Friday. And I thought, yeah, it's Friday, and I'm doing absolutely nothing this weekend. Then I thought to myself, maybe that's why I'm so excited. Weather's going to be good. I see farmer's market and some hummus in my future. By the way, if you've never been to the Rancho Cucamonga farmer's market, uh, that's in the Target shopping center on Foothill and Haven. Oh, okay. The hummus there from, I think it's called three brothers or something like that. Brothers, something like that. Anyway, maybe I'm just excited about that. Maybe I'm excited about the fact that I was go get a cookie at uh, Mr. Baker afterwards. Or maybe I'm just excited that I get to sleep in. Either way, we do not have rain in the forecast through at least Saturday. So you've got a beautiful weekend coming up. Hopefully dry out a little bit. Clean up that backyard that's probably a mess. So it's going to be a good weekend. I can feel it. Here's what's ahead on your wake-up call. The National Guard and other responders have arrived in the San Bernardino Mountains to help people who have been stuck in their homes under several feet of snow. LAX says it's expecting one of the busiest spring break travel periods since 2019. And there's a new survey that shows one in five people in the U.S. want to be like us and live in L.A. That's right, people, you wish. 505, we'll talk politics with ABC News political director Rick Klein. We're going to get into CPAC. Who's there? Who's not there? Where the who's not there have, are going. Also, we'll talk about the president meeting with members of uh, his own party yesterday. Chuck Schumer all smiles after meeting up with the president. And uh, George Santos. I don't think he was smiling. He's facing an investigative subcommittee. So I guess I knew that there were subcommittees before the committees. But doesn't this feel like, well, we have to vote on whether we're going to vote to investigate the guy? Yeah, it feels very preliminary, but I guess we got to start somewhere. So we'll get into all of that with Rick in just a few minutes. But let's update what's going on in the San Bernardino Mountains. The National Guard and other responders have arrived in the San Bernardino Mountains to help people who have been stuck in their homes under several feet of snow. The dire need for basic essentials is growing in the mountain communities east of Los Angeles, where back-to-back storms dumped up to seven feet of snow. Oh, it blew the side off of it. Some areas of San Bernardino County have been cut off for 10 days. That's ABC's Lionel Moise, who says sheriff's deputies and firefighters could be seen yesterday preparing a helicopter to deliver ready-to-eat meals. People in Crestline, Lake Arrowhead, Running Springs, and other communities have reported running low on foods and other necessities. Crestline lost its only grocery store when the roof collapsed. Now, it's not just the weight of the snow that's damaged homes in some mountain communities. Backed up gas lines have caused explosions. This man tells KTLA a family member was hurt when something blew up. It blew him back through the bedroom door, knocking the bedroom door off of the uh, hinges. 
The man has burns on his face and chest. Now, at 10 o'clock this morning, they are supposed to do another news conference and give an update on what's happening in the San Bernardino Mountains and how they are, are trying to get to those people and help them out. KFI's Blake Trolley is in San Bernardino, and he will bring us the latest on that when that news conference happens. Again, that's at 10 o'clock. Did you know some automotive experts say EV battery charges or charge better when it's hot? So this last week of cold weather storms means EV drivers have been waiting longer to get a charge and their battery stopped charging well below capacity. See, this is one more reason why I am all for electric cars once we get the infrastructure there. And that includes, I guess, my, my, uh, my hope that we get a better handle on making even the cars work efficiently. So even, even the charging for the cars is not quite there yet. And so that's when I see some of these regulations that we need to have all electric cars by a certain year in some spots. I say, I'm all for that. I, I'm behind that 100%. Just show me your math that we have the infrastructure to go along with that lofty goal. And I'll sign on. ABC's political director, Rick Klein, joins us now. Rick, good morning. So on one side, we can look at the people who are at CPAC. And on the other, we can go, hey, there are a couple of people who are definitely not at CPAC that we might have expected to be there. Yeah, I mean, this has usually been the, the kind of launch to, to campaign season, and it doesn't feel like that for whatever reason this time around. There's definitely a lot more emphasis on the people that aren't there. That would include people like Mike Pence, who might get booed because it's so Trumpy. Some of the anti-MAGA Republicans uh, also realize that this is a very Trump-friendly crowd these days. And Ron DeSantis is the biggest name who's not there, and I think he's playing his own game and recognizes that he may not need the same kind of exposure that others do. Uh, he's able to, to to drive the news cycle on his own. He's got a book out. He's got a legislative session coming up. So uh, he, it's just uh, it's just factors a little bit differently into into how he's playing this, and that 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 trickles down throughout the entire race. And that's DeSantis and Pence who are at a different conservative kind of convention, I guess, this weekend. Yeah, this one's behind closed doors, um, but um, no less important. It's the Club for Growth, the, the, the conservative anti-tax group. And the Club for Growth is really where the money is in the party. And, and that, I think, is driving some of the, uh, the different interests. So it might be following the money as opposed to following the activist that tells you where the party is, uh, is headed, at least according to where these, these calculations are for, these, for the candidates. OK, where's the Democratic Party headed? I know that President Biden met with members of his own party this week. Chuck Schumer talking about a delightful visit with his old colleagues earlier this week and that he and the president <laughs> looked at, you know, implementing all the president's accomplishments over the last couple of years. But where are we there? Yeah, I think right now the, the party is in an interesting place because everyone is presuming that President Biden runs for election and I think he's very likely to run for reelection, but he actually hasn't announced yet. And until or unless that happens, everything can't fall into place as neatly as uh, as they may li- they may like. So. They're waiting on the president. Uh, it's interesting. This weekend, Marianne Williamson, um, who we remember from an early debate stage yeah. four years ago, she's declaring her candidacy for president. And so, yeah, I don't think she's likely to be the nominee. But let's look at what this means for the Democrats to have a declared candidate who isn't the current president. It puts the pressure on on Biden uh, and other power brokers in the party to figure out exactly what they're going to do, if there's a backup plan, if they might need one. And George Santos now an investigative subcommittee. So is this sort of the uh, a beginning of the end of him? This is new to me. I mean, usually the ethics committee 
investigates a particular episode involving a particular person, uh, and it's rather discreet uh, in terms of what the what the focus is. This is uh, a very wide swath. This is looking at really everything George Santos related, and uh, they could find anything. They could go anywhere with it. Uh, it could head in some really interesting directions. I think the legal end of things, multiple states, even multiple countries investigating him is probably more likely to, to be his ultimate downfall, but uh, certainly not a good side when the ethics committee is just looking at everything that you've done. All right. Thank you so much, Rick. We'll talk to you again soon. Rick Klein is ABC's yeah. political director and also the host of uh, This Week that will be on on Sunday. California Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein is in the hospital in San Francisco. She's being treated for shingles. It's a viral infection that causes a painful rash. ABC's Ann Flaherty says Feinstein's office put out a short statement saying the 89-year-old six-term senator was diagnosed last month but is expected to make a full recovery. In a statement to reporters, she says she hopes to return to the Senate later this month. Feinstein is the oldest serving member of the U.S. Senate. Well, thousands of people in L.A. have gathered for a celebration of life for Bishop David O'Connell, who was killed at his home. Services started at a church in Hacienda Heights, where O'Connell lived. Members of the bishop's family say he will never be forgotten. We say a special prayer for our uncle, who has been a huge support and inspiration to us and who will forever be a constant presence in our lives. A public viewing for O'Connell was held yesterday at the L.A. Cathedral, which was followed by a vigil mass. The auxiliary bishop was allegedly shot and killed nearly two weeks ago by his housekeeper's husband. Chris Adler, KFI News. And a funeral mass for the bishop is at 11 this morning at the cathedral in L.A. Guilty verdict. Ah, disgraced lawyer Alex Murdaugh was found guilty in South Carolina of murdering his wife and son. The jury deliberated for less than three hours. Now, the panel also found Murdaugh guilty yesterday of two counts of possession of a weapon during the killings. He's facing 30 years to life in prison without parole. Here's why I like South Carolina. When he is sentenced this morning. Man, they flip that around. You're, you are convicted and you are sentenced. Boom, boom. There's not this big waiting period. And then we don't have to add up the time that you are. OK, well, this is uh, he's already been in prison for this time or jail for this much time. No. Boom, boom. Anyway, for that trial, I was even talking to my neighbor. Excuse me yesterday. About how. For whatever reason, everybody got kind of sucked into this trial right at the very end. And whether you watch the Netflix series about the Murdoch family and, and the hold that they had over this small community in South Carolina for for generations, um, it was something about the mm, sneakiness. It kind of felt like or the I'm smarter than you feel. That a lot of people got from Alex Murdaugh while he was on the stand, or if I do this uh, sort of folksy rendition of of my life in South Carolina, it's going to draw some empathy toward me or something like that. It, it was something about his testimony, Alex Murdaugh's testimony, that made people go, nah, that guy's guilty. Anyway, it was a, it was a wild trial to watch from a drama standpoint. Attorneys for the woman in L.A. who filed a lawsuit against Harvey Weinstein say they need the court's help to get the papers served. Officers at Twin Towers Jail say Weinstein refuses to come out of his cell and receive the court documents. 
Now, the lawsuit filed last month alleges sexual battery, among other claims. KFI reached out to Weinstein's attorney, who was not available for comment. A hearing is set for Tuesday, where the former model's attorney could ask the judge to serve the disgraced movie executive. National Guards arrived in San Bernardino County to help people in the mountain communities dig out of the snow. They're also working with Cal OES and county officials to clear the roads and help with anything that is needed. The state is also contracting with private companies to help speed up snow removal. And LAX says it's expecting one of the busiest spring break travel periods since 2019. The airport predicts more than 12 million people will pass through the airport between March and April. 535, we're going to talk with KFI's house whisperer, Dean Sharp. Do you know there is more than one way to skin a house? I don't know. I was trying to come up with something clever to talk about literally the skin of your house. I kind of never thought of it that way, but that's exactly what it is. So we'll get into that with Dean in just a few minutes. But right now, let's say good morning to ABC's Jim Ryan and a very disturbing link between social media use and eating disorders that has just come out. Jim, good morning. Good morning. Disturbing, but maybe not so surprising. This is National Eating Disorder Awareness Week, and that's why this is coming up at all. But yes, uh, pediatricians, child psychologists, others say that they are seeing an increase in young people who are suffering from eating disorders. And they suspect that there is a link between those young people's use of social media and their potentially dangerous ways of trying to control their weight or change their appearance. Uh, the image of that's presented to young people on TikTok or on Twitter or on Instagram seems to be the key here, that these kids are seeing the, the, the ideal of, of uh, beauty or weight and trying to copy that and doing everything they can to try to do something about it. Uh, so, yeah, that seems to be where the, this all is coming from. A report from the Center for Countering Digital Hate, which is a nonprofit, found that within 30 minutes of a 13-year-old joining TikTok, the teenagers being recommended uh, different kinds of content tried to, uh, tied to eating disorders. They're being recommended ways to, to eat differently to change their appearance. And that's what's so scary is... Yeah. It's to this day. I mean, here I am, you know, 47 years old and I still look and I see the Kardashians and I'm like, damn, I'd love that body. And I think to myself, you know, what could I do differently to get there or something like that? Now imagine you're 13 years old and you have all the pressures of being a teenager and your hormones are crazy and, you, you know, you don't have your, your mind figured out yet. So when something like that pops up, you're like, oh, really? If I starved myself, if I did this or that, maybe I could get that, you know, Kendall Jenner body or, or whatever it is. And I could see how easy it would be to mold somebody young who maybe doesn't have that other side where they're like oh wait a minute that's unobtainable that's their job is to look like that exactly right that they they want to that's that's a personal appearance that they're putting out yeah. there on tiktok or on social media and these kids are seeing it and saying yeah that 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 is apparently what people are supposed to look like and so i'm going to do what i can to look like that they're actually finding places on social media that uh, actually show them how to become bulimic or how to become anorexic you know at the same time though you see users who are trying to to confront this trying to reverse it in some way Uh, there is a tiktok user named sarah sadock she's an 18 year old from chicago Uh, there's another one a 22 year old chris herney or henry from new New jersey they have uh, sort of joint tiktok accounts where they sit down and talk with kids uh, and they actually eat a meal with these kids say this is you know that it's okay to have a meal here because 
uh, the big, big concern is that so many kids are, are starving themselves, essentially. Yeah. So that's what these two young people are trying to do to counter this on social media. Which is so important because it a lot of times is about peer pressure, peer pressure one way or the other, or just seeing, uh, you know, hey, it's okay. And they're, look at all these other teenagers who are doing this or that. And so whether it be, hey, I'm starving myself or seeing that flip side of it's okay to sit down and just freaking eat lunch or whatever the case may be. Sometimes that's all a teenager needs. Right. I mean, if it's if they're that uh, impressionable to be tipped yeah. toward uh, an eating disorder, why not try to uh, to send them the other direction toward healthy eating habits and and maybe not this body dysmorphia that's leading to this kind of trouble? I know that sometimes when you're younger, um, it's a trend. It's not necessarily. I mean, it could be a trend of, OK, hey, everybody's wearing now, you know, uh, I don't know, flare leg pants or something like that. So I'm going to go get some flare leg pants. If you think everybody in your class isn't eating or skipping meals or whatever, it may not at that time be really any different than just joining another fad. Right. Yeah. And and pediatricians say that they're seeing the results of it now. And these kids, nine, 10 years old, in some cases, who now are on social media and trying different uh, methods of controlling their weight, grow into 20, 30 somethings who have these lingering eating disorders. Ginger Z of ABC News has talked about that quite openly, her 10 year battle with anorexia. And she says she still struggles with that. God bless her, man. It's it's like it's people like her who when they come out and you go, wow, she's gorgeous. What do you mean she struggled with something like that? Sometimes you just need somebody who you never thought would have had that issue just to say, I struggle with that, too. It makes them more human. And it also makes you feel like, wow, if she struggled and overcame it. I can, too. Jim, thank you so much. This is good to, I think, point out. Thanks, Jennifer. All right. See you later. ABC's Jim Ryan. Does not break your heart when he says nine, 10 years old. 10-year-olds, my oldest nephew is nine. And that kid is, you know, last time I saw him, he was like, Auntie Jenny, watch. I got a new electric scooter and off he went. I know he watches TikTok videos because he was showing me a couple of shorts that he saw. And that would break my heart if I thought Jordan was looking at, I don't know, body dysmorphia stuff. It would... That's just, that's so sad. Like, let's just let kids be kids and not be faced with this. But this is the world in which we live. Well, fans of flowers can find the 411 on where to see wildflowers just by picking up the phone. KFI's Joe Kwan says people can hear the voice of a star on what's called the wildflower hotline. Are you ready for an amazing wildflower season? That's the voice of movie and TV star Joe Spano. You may know him from Hill Street Blues or NCIS. For the past 20 years, Joe's been the voice of the wildflower hotline, where you'll hear things like... Small flowered poppies, playful chicory blooms peeking out from the cover of shrubs. Very romantic. It is romantic. Every Friday in March through May, you'll hear Joe's voice giving you the latest info about wildflowers in Southern California. The Theodore Payne Foundation in Sun Valley started the hotline 40 years ago. The nonprofit's Evan Meyer says it was a way to support their mission. To inspire and connect people to California native plants. The hotline is also available as a podcast. Joe says he feels good to be part of something that can bring people joy. An opportunity to do something that is no questions. Good to do. <laughs> you can reach the Wildflower Hotline at 818-768-1802, extension 7. Calling on the hotline. 
For more, you can go to SpectrumNews1.com. Joe Kwan, KFI News. Well, a $25,000 reward is up to find the Chesapeake bandits who have snatched more than half a million dollars from armored trucks. Law enforcement chose the name for this group because investigators believe the suspects are meeting and staging at robberies at a residence on Chesapeake Avenue in the West Adams neighborhood of Los Angeles. Ah, see, we always wonder where these names come from. That's why. FBI LA's Don Always says the crew has robbed five trucks in the last year and says the thieves point assault rifles and zip-tie the drivers. He says one member named Denavius Hobson has been arrested. Another named James Davis is a fugitive, and there are five unidentified others involved. The former head of Metro in L.A. is going through a Senate confirmation hearing in Washington, D.C. Bill Washington was chosen by President Biden to head up the FAA. During questioning, Texas Republican Senator Ted Cruz brought up an accusation that Washington was involved in a pay-to-play scheme involving Metro and the nonprofit group Peace Over Violence. Cruz read from a search warrant. The contract was pushed forward by CEO Philip Washington in order to remain in good graces with Supervisor Sheila Cool. Washington denied any involvement in the scandal. Cruz said Wednesday Washington's not qualified to be the FAA director. Steve Gregory, KFI News. And there's a new survey, Dean Sharp, who says one in five people in the U.S. want to live in L.A. It's real estate website Home Bay that says the study is part of a larger survey of a thousand people who recently moved. Now, the most popular state to move to was Florida, but... If money grew on palm trees, haha, people say they would prefer to live in California. And so for all those people who have said, oh, I don't want to live in California because the taxes are too high and the politics are too crazy. Mm, but do you really? Yeah, uh, that's not actually surprising at all for those of us who are in the home industry. Yeah. Uh, it's simply, you know, I, everybody complains about California. And everybody wants to move <laughs> to California. And a lot of people move out of California. Granted, you know what? But the truth is, we still have a high housing crisis in California because more people want to be here than want to leave. So there, there you go. Yep, exactly. That's it. Every time I go, I get my bill, you know, my tax bill or whatever it happens to be. And I think, oh, California, maybe I'll move to Tennessee or maybe, you know, something like that. And then I think, why the hell would I leave this state? It's beautiful. It's worth it, I think, anyway. Well, Dean Sharp is obviously our KFI house whisperer. You can listen to him 6 to 8 tomorrow morning. Also, 9 to noon on Sunday. And follow him at Home with Dean on social media. Dean, good morning. Good morning. So when I saw your thing about skinning a house, it immediately made me think of the time that my grandpa said, there's more than one way to skin a cat. And I remember yeah. as a kid walking away going, I don't, I think that's gross. I don't get it. But then when I looked at, okay, the skin of a house, it is true. There is more than one way to skin a house. Yeah, first of all, uh, like you, I've never understood why anybody would want to skin a cat. No, okay? I don't. But. Anyway, uh, but yeah, uh, the skin on our houses, uh, both inside and outside, strangely enough, even though these are the surfaces that we actually interact with the most, you know, it's not like we are, uh, you know, interacting with the studs and the insulation and the electrical wires every day. No, it's the skin of the house. It's the drywall on the inside. It's the stucco and the siding on the outside. Uh, 
people have a gross amount of misunderstanding uh, about those things, especially when they start to freak out, like after the storms recently here, because there's water damage, maybe the drywall got damaged, maybe the stucco is behaving bizarrely because too much water got up against the house. I just thought it would be a great time to address those things. And in my inimitable style, of course, I'm going to nerd out on it. And we're going to talk about uh, for everybody, you know, because there are two kinds of people out there. There are folks who are like, listen, I don't care where a thing came from. Just show me how to patch my drywall. <laughs> and other people are more interested in understanding their house better. And like, where, why do I have drywall in the first? What is this stuff? And so we're, we're going to take the weekend and cover both bases. We're going to tell you how to effectively repair your drywall and your stucco. Uh, why not to panic when something's going wrong with it? Because here's the first lesson of skin. Uh, it's not holding your body together. Yes, it's important, really important. But, you know, <laughs> if we were to make an incision around my shoulder, my arm is not going to fall off. So when people see a hole in their drywall or stucco damage, they don't have to freak out that, oh, my house is about to collapse. Uh, okay. No, it's not. It, this is the skin. Okay, so let's talk about drywall. And I'm going to make this all about me for just a moment because I need to okay. know how to patch drywall because Betty White, the puppy who is in reform school right now, she's a week down, uh, she ate the molding off of the right around the front door as she would hear me come in and maybe I wouldn't come in. I'm chatting with a neighbor. First, she ate that off. And then she proceeded to paw at the uh, drywall next to the door. Now I have a hole in my drywall next to the door. And when I heard you talking with Handel earlier this week, I thought, yeah, there are going to be people who have storm damage. So they're going to need to take out a part of their drywall and patch that. So I can find out how to do that at the same time. Exactly. Uh, and when it comes to patching drywall, there's a couple of rules. Uh, number one is, first of all, if it's been damaged, you got to get beyond the damage. Uh, okay. So if especially if it is water damage now, not so much Betty White damage, right? If Betty White <laughs> damage just been chewing a hole in the drywall, <laughs> then that's pretty much the edge. The edge is the edge. That's where it is. Uh, if there's water damage, you got to make sure that we'll remove the drywall that is soaked and has been damaged by the water. Right. We got to get beyond the water area and then deal with patching it at that point. Now, the thing with drywall is if uh, I don't know how big of a hole Betty White made in your drywall, but if it's up to uh, about three inches in oh, diameter yeah. or yeah. smaller or smaller or smaller, then, okay. patch, then patching is pretty easy because you can run down to the hardware store uh, right now and buy these uh, metal patch kits. They are a very, very thin piece of metal with an adhesive on the back that will literally just start by sticking it on the wall over that hole. And it's a nice firm piece of metal. So it's going to provide a decent base for a patch. And then you basically, you know, for lack of a better term, I'll just use the term people are familiar with spackle over this metal uh, patch piece, smooth it out and then repaint the wall. So holes three inches in diameter and smaller can be patched up real quick without adding new drywall. If you want to do it that way. Once we get over three inches, now we've got to add new drywall. And there's a couple of different ways of doing that to uh, to a wall. Okay. So and for some people, um, I know even a couple of my neighbors were talking about if we hadn't had all of this rain and whatever, I might not have known that I had an issue, whether it be in my roof or whether it be, you know, the drywall or whatever. But in this case, there are people who are going to have to cut out 
portions and get back there behind the drywall damage or the water damage or whatever, what how, how do they go about it then? Do you have to call a professional or can you do it yourself? Well, it depends on how handy you are. You know, drywall is not uh, rocket science. Uh, it's an amazing product. But uh, basically, the rule with drywall is if we're taking out a large piece, then the new piece that we put in needs what we call backing. It needs support on all of its edges. And that's really the key about making a big drywall patch or replacing a sheet of drywall. So if we're taking out a sheet of drywall or a piece of drywall, we want to take it out all the way to the stud. Uh, that, uh, you know, on both sides of uh, the damage and expose a little bit of that stud so that the new piece has an edge to press against that we can screw it into. Also, ideally, across the other two edges of that piece. So we like to take a new piece of drywall and surround it by backing so that we can screw all the edges down and then tape it and blend it in with the rest of the wall or the ceiling. That's the general rule. I know there are a lot of specifics that go along with that, but that's the general rule. So when you're removing drywall, you want to re remove it wood to wood, right? Wood member to wood member in your house so that uh, you're not just leaving a random hole in the center of the wall. Now, even those can be patched if we don't want to take too much out. But what they require is, uh, is kind of finagling a larger piece of drywall back behind the hole screwing it in from reverse so that mm. we can actually put some backing in place to uh, to put a new piece in. So I'll describe this a little bit more in detail over the weekend. Uh, okay. But essentially, the rule is you need firm backing for the new piece of drywall. Otherwise, the patch is not going to hold. Okay. And there, I mean, whether it's storm damage or whatever, or your kid, you know, was playing soccer in the room or whatever and kicked out a hole or whatever, people are going to need to know that kind of thing. The other thing that I know you're going to get into this weekend, and I'm going to use this as a tease because we're out of time, is stucco. You explained something to handle about stucco. And if you start to see a little bit of your stucco flaking where people are like, oh, my God, my stucco's gone. That's it. My house is falling apart. You uh, just tease us with what you might explain this weekend about if you see some of that peeling of your stucco. I will just say this. Stucco goes on in layers. Your stucco on your house is about an inch thick. And <clears throat> the part that you see that most often, 99 times out of 100, is like, oh, my gosh, it's falling off. It's corroding. <laughs> it's been... Uh, is like the uh, the the outermost thinnest layer, and no, your stucco is not falling apart. Dean, you're awesome. At home with Dean on social media tomorrow, six to eight, Sunday nine to noon. Have a great one, Dean. Thanks, Jen. Thanks. See you later. If you followed the life of P22, as I know, captivated so many people in Southern California, you were following. The Hollywood cat who crossed two freeways and survived a couple, uh, what, a decade as the wildest resident of Griffith Park. P-22, of course, died recently. And how best to honor his life? Well, we have some ways. National Wildlife Federation's California Regional Executive Director Beth Pratt is with us this morning. Beth, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's start with... Um, Almost, I know this is silly to say it, but almost what is the simple way? Let's get a stamp to honor P-22. And so every time that you get something in the mail from somebody who was, you know, captivated by the life of P-22, you can see that a little bit of P-22 still is doing good, I guess, in the world. I love that idea. When Congressman Schiff proposed it, uh, it's one of the things he announced at the memorial. 
um, the response has been phenomenal. Um, and, yeah, I love the idea of putting P22 on a stamp, mailing a letter. Uh, so I'm all for it. Absolutely. As am I. And uh, yeah, let's keep this push going. I know that this is one thing I want to get behind. And one thing that I have been behind since the beginning, since I found out about rodenticides and kind of the trickle down effect that rodenticides have from the time that the, you know, rat eats it all the way to when it gets to a mountain lion like P-22 I didn't realize what the impact was on nature from the rat to, say, the P-22s. But let's talk a little bit about this because L.A. County wants to make a big difference when it comes to rat poison in our community. Yeah, and, you know, you're like a lot of people. I think most people don't realize, you know, those poison bait boxes most people think are harmless, except if you're a rat uh, because the pest control companies probably don't tell you otherwise, but we know they're extremely deadly and to all wildlife and even our domestic animals. Um, the rats do not die right away in those bait control boxes. They can, uh, will often live longer, get eaten by a coyote who then can get sick and die, or that coyote could get eaten by a mountain lion. Um, but whatever the impacts, it's a terrible death for wildlife and we want to prevent them. But like I said, the good news is most people, once they're educated, do stop using them and looking for alternatives because, I mean, P-22 almost died from rat poison in 2014. Uh, he was, you know, it was the thing I worried about more than cars for him. And we've had a number of cats die in the National Park Service study or at least be impacted by it. So this is a good way to honor him. We can build wildlife crossings, which we're doing in his honor, the Wallace-Sandenberg Wildlife Crossing. But there's also other challenges like rat poison we have to eliminate as well. Yeah, and I, I think that a lot of people don't remember that or maybe know that. Maybe P-22 wasn't quite as on the radar as he was over the last, you know, five years or so. But in 2014, when we found out that he had those anticoagulant rodenticides in him, um, maybe at that time he wasn't, you know, he survived. And a lot of people thought, oh, well, you know, he, like every other, can survive it. Not necessarily. It depends. I mean, it just so happened that he was strong and was able to make it through this. But that's not going to happen to every other animal out there, especially like you're saying, a coyote or something like that. And maybe people see them as predators and, and whatever. But at the same time, they're part of our ecosystem. They are. You, we don't want to live in a world without mountain lions and coyotes, I can no. tell you. It would be, you know, uh, but, yeah, P-22, um, and the only reason he survived it is because we did notice some of his, you know, him looking not like the handsome cat we beloved on remote camera, and the Park Service was able to capture and treat him. Obviously, not every animal we're monitoring as closely. Um, it is a terrible death. These, these cats die by bleeding to death internally usually from it or other animals and indeed the national park service had um uh, an animal who was hit by a car recently who not only tested positive for i think it was five or six of these anticoagulants but her four kittens in utero tested for them as well they're oh. so pervasive in in our ecosystems for a number of wildlife not just mountain lions we just have to stop them and i really applaud the supervisors for taking this step because it's going to take bold action to get these out of our communities. What is the opposition to this? What's their strongest argument that you feel that you and the supervisors are going to have to push back against? Yeah, I feel like all along, and you know, the state took um, 
And this was partly in response to P22, you know, seeing this magnificent cat look, you know, for a while very unhealthy and sick. You know, AB1788 was a statewide banned on um, second-generation anticoagulants. So, you know, what's great is California, as usual, is kind of leading the way. But we need to go further, like, uh, you know, some of these bands as well, where county by county we stopped, you know, we'd start discouraging their use. Um, but I, you know, there was alternatives. I think that the biggest pushback we get is people need pest control, which I absolutely understand, but we approach it wrong. We go right to these poisons where, um, you know, one of the first steps is just exclusion. Stop you know, creating unnatural food sources for rodents, such as, you know, you need to secure your garbage. You need to ensure you're not leaving your pet food out, things that attract them. So I think the biggest pushback I've seen with these bans is just the need for pest control. But as a lot of groups have shown, like Poison Free Malibu, who are you know really working on this, there's alternatives that don't involve needing to use these poisons. Yeah, we've talked about getting an owl box out there to get rid of any, you know, rats or mice that you might have around your house. I love that because two things happen. You're getting rid of the rats and mice, but how cool would it be to have an owl living in an owl box in your backyard? You know, to me, that's the best thing you can do. I actually live um, not in L.A., but outside Yosemite. I'm in L.A., you know, uh, half time. It's the second home, but I don't have a rodent problem. I have natural predators I attract. I don't use poisons. Um, I have indoor cats, so there's no, you know, no mice or, or rodents <laughs> getting into the house. Uh, um, so there's, you know, just mimicking, if you, your yard mimics sort of the natural ecosystem, the predators like coyotes and bobcats, I catch them on my cameras, you know, getting the squirrels and rodents all the time. So... It's mimicking the natural ecosystem is one. However, we do, you know, realize that sometimes these infestations get out of control. Um, and to bring it back in balance, that's where you're going to need some sort of pest management, I like to call it. And But there are humane alternatives to that and ways you can manage that without putting these poisons into the system. And where can people go to get that information if they're thinking, you know what, I want to, I just want to make that shift. What is that one thing that I can do where I can help to make a difference in this? Where can they go? Yeah, I'd say groups like Poison Free Malibu, Raptors Are the Solution. Um, those are two groups, you know, along with there's a, a bunch of poison frees that have cropped up, like Poison yeah. Free Agora, Poison Free Calabasas. Uh, any of those groups have on their websites and, and have a lot of literature around these alternatives that you can use. So I'd say those are really great places to start to get some more information on that. Awesome. Beth, thank you so much. Please come back on Wake Up Call anytime you'd like. Thanks for being P22 fans, and, uh, and but also wanting to do more for, for these mountain lions and other wildlife. Absolutely. I'm a, I am grew up very rurally, like go all the way to Northern California, hit Redding and take a right and go as wow. far out as you can. And um, so when, like, um, for whatever reason, we, we had tons of coyotes and mountain lions. We lived on 400 acres and it would, um, the mountain lions though, were fascinating out in the field next to my house. My dad had made um, it was like a, a field of dreams, sort of. So we had we had soccer fields, and then we had kind of a baseball field. Now, granted, when I say that, it really just means that my dad took a backhoe and like dug us a you know diamond. But I remember one night specifically, it was me and a bunch of the boys who lived on my street. It was a Friday night, and we were out 
playing softball, sort of in the dark, I guess. And we heard that screech of a mountain lion. And everybody Whoa. just stopped in place. I mean, here I, I was, what, 12, 11, 12? To this day, I still remember how excited we all were. <laughs> that, like, oh, my God, there's a mountain lion out there. How cool is this? You know, and we used to see coyotes and whatnot run across the back. But we had horses. We had dogs. We had cats. We had the whole nine yards. But everybody lived. You, you didn't. They weren't uh, something you got rid of. They were almost something that you protected. That's the way we saw it. Unless they were, you know, specifically going after sheep or something like that, that we needed to, you know, get them off of sort of the ranch portion of it. They were part of it and they, they were part of the system. You know, we were encroaching on their area. So it was very much from, you know, the way that my parents taught me is you love them and you protect them. And unless they're, you know, hurting you, you're on their territory, girl. So, you know, like back off and enjoy the fact that they're even even screeching or or singing like the coyotes do or whatever. Like, how cool is that that you get to experience that? That's a great attitude to have about our native wildlife. Thank you for having that. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that's why I'm so in love with this. I'm like, oh, it takes me back to my childhood. So, Beth, <laughs> thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yep. Absolutely. Take care. Take care. Beth Pratt is the National Wildlife Federation's California Regional Executive Director. <sighs> if you've never heard a mountain lion screech, oh, it is scary as hell. And yet the coolest thing that you have ever heard. I'm telling you. It's KFI and KOST HD2, Los Angeles, Orange County. Your SoCal weather from KFI. Sunshine. I haven't been really able to say that for the next couple of days. Temperatures are going to be in the low to mid 60s. It's going to be gorgeous this weekend. We do have some more clouds coming in on Sunday with a slight chance of showers. We lead local live from the KFI 24-hour newsroom. I'm Jennifer Jones-Lee. This has been your wake-up call. You've been listening to your wake-up call with me, Jennifer Jones-Lee, and you can always hear wake-up call 5 to 6 a.m. Monday through Friday at KFI AM 640 and anytime on demand on the iHeartRadio app.